Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Today we're going to look once again at verses 14 through 21, and this is our third opportunity to look at these scriptures, and I think it's a very important passage. Uh, I do believe that these are verses that merit our close attention. We have here a wonderfully impressive description of our Savior, and we find it here in distinction to people whose hearts were hardened against him, hardened against the gospel. Jesus has had a desire to save people from their sins, and here we find that there are people that were determined that somehow, some way, that they would kill him before he could dismantle their self-righteous religious scheme. And I want you to notice as we begin this scripture today uh, how it begins with wicked men that are plotting to kill Jesus. But in the last uh, verse that we're going to read here, we find that Jesus promises salvation for those who believe in him. Now, if you'll stand with me once again for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 14 It says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Father, we thank you for your word, and We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to bring this message to your people today. I just pray, Lord, you'd open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is really a a great part of Scripture. Uh, Some have described these verses as an oasis because surrounding on either side of this passage that we've read, there is just a really a, a desert, just a barren wasteland of evil. On one side, you have this purposeful statement of people that want to kill him, a a desire to to kill him. And then a little bit later on, and we'll get into the message uh, beginning on this next week, we're going to find people that accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And on either side of this, right here in in the middle of these sinful hearts, we have Jesus the one whom God the Father loves and the one that the uh, Scripture says that he is well pleased with. The key verse is verse number 18. It's a quotation from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And it's a prophecy concerning the Messiah which says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. And in our previous messages, we've discussed what comes before this passage. The enemies of Jesus had tried to entrap him. They said that he broke God's law in the observance of the Sabbath. And that was a very serious accusation because the Sabbath played such an important part of the religious system. To them, righteousness was dependent upon Sabbath day activities. And their main goal was to prove that Jesus could not be the Messiah. 
And so if they could catch him in some kind of an activity that was a violation of the law, then they could prove that he was not from God. You see, God would never endorse a sinner. And that would be true no matter whether you agreed with the Pharisees or not. God is not in support of sinful people. And so to them, this righteousness was dependent upon that Sabbath day activity. And the Pharisees were very carefully watching every move that Jesus made. And so there was a Sabbath day where they made sure that they were watching him as his disciples walked through a wheat field. And as they went through that field, they pulled off some of the heads of grain and they began to eat them. And right then, the Pharisees had their charge. They barged in and they said, Your disciples and you, you're not doing what is lawful to do on the Sabbath day. And of course, that was a bogus charge. It wasn't God's law that they were trying to uphold. It was their own law. And so Jesus began to teach them the right interpretation of the law and how that they had misused God's intent for the Sabbath. And so you'll find in those preceding verses that Jesus used examples to show them how they were wrong. And the one example that really infuriated them the most is when he went into the synagogue and he healed a man on the Sabbath day. And when he did that, he put the Pharisees to shame in front of all of the people. Now in verse 14, you'll find here the barrenness of this desert. You see no water of life in the Pharisees' activity because when Jesus did this, they began to scheme how they could put him to death. And we talked about that in, our, in the first part of this message, which was the plot against the Savior. The scripture says they held a council against him, They'd already made up their minds that they wanted to kill him, but now they're getting more serious about this, and so they hold a council to determine the way in which they could do it. And so from this point on in Jesus' ministry, he was constantly being dogged by these Pharisees, and they were looking for every opportunity to discredit him. They were looking for any and every opportunity to turn people against him and convince them that he should be killed. And so as you go on in Matthew, as we read on in our study, we'll find this constant struggle against them. Uh, They're always trying their best to kill him. But as we see here that God is always in control. For thousands of years, God had this intent that his own son would come into the world and that he would give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And God was going to make sure that his perfect plan was carried out in every detail. And so although the Pharisees were working out of the evil of their hearts, yet it was all working within God's intended, predetermined, ordained plan. Jesus would not be taken before the appropriate time. He would not be taken before he was ready to go to the cross. He had more ministry to do. He had the training of his disciples to do. And then when Jesus was done with that ministry, when he had accomplished everything that the Father gave him to do through through his ministry and his life, then Jesus would go to the cross. Then he would make his way to Jerusalem. And he would not be deterred in any way from that accomplishing the purpose that God had given him and this eternal plan that God had given him to fulfill. That plan, ladies and gentlemen, is the redemption of God's people. That plan is the salvation of your soul. That if you trust in him, if you believe him, he'll save you from your sins. Now, we discussed that last week as we began to talk about the plan for the servant. This plotting and scheming of the Pharisees were a part of the plan. It's God's intention to save sinners. And we don't have a better example anywhere in Scripture of the wicked hearts of people 
These Pharisees were about the most wicked that you could ever get. And so you see this contrast between them and Jesus. And that was that one of the points here, the contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees were trying to preserve their religion, even though in that religion there was no hope at all for eternal life, yet they wanted to preserve it because in doing so they preserved their power. When they preserved their religion, they preserved their position as leaders of the people. And Jesus was a threat to that position. If people accepted what he said, if they believed that he was truly the Messiah, if he was God as they claim, he claimed to be, then they must bow before him. They must surrender themselves to him. And that means the end of the authority of these religious leaders. So while Jesus was going about busily helping people and showing them the way of eternal life, while he was concerned about souls, here are people that, can, that cared nothing at all for others. Jesus, the Bible shows, was a servant of the people. He's God's servant. And these others intended to be the lords over the people. They weren't going to be any man's servant. It was too far beneath them to stoop down and, and help someone And at the same time also, they were not going to let Jesus destroy what they so desperately wanted to hold on to. And that's the great contrast. You see, if you want to be like God, you have to be like Jesus Christ. If you want to be acceptable to him, then you have to be like Jesus. You have to sacrifice yourself for people. And while Jesus was busy doing kingdom work, these are people that are busy plotting murder. And that's the contrast. Jesus saves lives And they were intent on ending his. And then we also discussed that Jesus was chosen by the Father. The 18th verse tells us that. It's a quotation from Isaiah. The prophecy was spoken 700 years before Jesus came. And in the book of Isaiah, you'll find many uh, prophecies about the coming Messiah. In the seventh chapter, you find where he, the scripture says that he would be born of a virgin. And in the ninth chapter, it tells us that he would be a king that would sit on the throne of David. This particular quotation comes from Isaiah 42. But you can go on reading, and you find Isaiah chapter 53, and there it tells us that that Jesus would go to the death of the cross that that was God's predetermined plan and that Jesus came into this world knowing exactly how his life would end. We find no promise in the scripture that Jesus would be born in a palace. There is no promise that he would live a life of luxury. There was no promise that people would be happy to see him when he came. There was no promise that people would bow to him. But it was promised And we read it in Isaiah 53 that he would be despised and rejected. We have a promise there that he would be smitten. There's a promise that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There is a promise that he would be wounded for our transgressions and a promise that he would be bruised for our iniquities and a promise that by his stripes and by his death we would be healed. Jesus was chosen for that and he agreed to it. Now, do you see how these verses are such an oasis? That wickedness of sin, the sin that's yours and mine, that's what nailed Jesus to the cross. And he came to save us despite that wickedness. He came to save us when all of us had gone astray, when all of us were vile sinners. He loved us, and he came to save us. And so how blessed we are that in the middle of our sinfulness that Jesus is dropped down into our desert of death And he comes with life-giving, refreshing water for our souls. 
Well, we've covered that in our previous messages, and folks, I, I think those parts are worth telling over and over and over again. But we have to move on. We want to uh, continue the study, so we have to move on. So we see that contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. We see that he was chosen by the Father. And now thirdly, Jesus was concealed until the right time. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. Have you ever wondered what you would do if you were in Jesus' sandals? I mean, if you were the Son of God, and you can read minds as it's obvious here, if you have power to speak the words and call down fire from heaven, what would you do if you found out that there was a plot to kill you? You remember when Jesus was brought into Pilate's judgment hall, that Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? And I have the power or the power to release you? And Jesus said, you have no power at all except what's given to you by God. And then when we talked about this when Peter was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus was there being taken and arrested, that Peter tried to defend Jesus. And in essence, Jesus said, Peter, I don't need your help. I can call 12 legions of angels if I want to deliver me and set me free. And so with that kind of power, doesn't it seem odd that Jesus would choose to conceal himself rather than right now ending all of this, just destroying his enemies right then and there? He could have done that. But this is part of his subjection to the Father. The timing is not right. The exaltation is not ready to come yet. He's not going to exalt himself by killing Jews. He's not going to be exalted by squashing Pilate like a bug. Christ's exaltation would come on the cross. His exaltation would come when he was lifted up on that cross, and there he would die. He, he would be exalted, actually, when he was put into the grave and when he was lying in the tomb. And the cross didn't look too good then, and the tomb didn't look like it was going to work out. It surely didn't look like victory. But then after three days, Jesus came out of that tomb. He proved that he had the victory, and he conquered, and he destroyed the power of sin and death and of hell. And the cross was the plan all along. The tomb is the plan. And Jesus was not going to let anything stand in his way of that death of the cross. It was predetermined. And so he would not circumvent it by killing his enemies right then, although he could have. And he wasn't going to die a different death. It could have been so much easier for Jesus to die a silent death. Perhaps he would die in his sleep. And he could have made that happen if he wanted to. But Jesus was determined to go to the cross because that's where the sacrifice for sin is made. And so what did Jesus do here? He got away from the immediate threat and he commanded the people not to let it be known, let him be known. And that seems like a really strange thing for Jesus to do because we would think, if anything, what Jesus would want to do is spread the news far and wide. Let everybody know who he is. Let everybody see the miracles that he did. And why didn't he just try to reach people everywhere at this time? That's what we would think. But Jesus had reasons for the concealment And you'll notice in the scriptures that Jesus had many face-to-face confrontations with people. He wanted them to make a decision on first-hand evidence rather than a story that had been told by someone else. If you go back to chapter 8 and you read there about the healing of a leper, he told that man after he healed him, he said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what I've done. You go to the priest 
and you show him that you have been healed, go to the priest first, tell them, and you, because you need to be declared clean. That's what the law of Moses says, and this is the way it must be done. And do you know the importance of that? Well, Jesus killed two birds with one stone, you might say. It showed that he would not deny the laws of God as he was accused of doing. And it forced the priests also to make a decision about the miracle that had been done. Here the leaders would have to say, a true bona fide miracle has taken place. And they would have to declare this man clean. And that would be public admittance to the authorities that a real miracle had been done. It was proof that he was the Messiah. And then Jesus also concealed himself because he didn't want the people then to push for him as a deliverer from Rome. It wasn't expedient for him to raise Rome's ire. He wasn't going to be a revolutionary and be guilty of sedition. That was a charge that was brought against him later, but that was unfounded. Jesus recognized human government. He he didn't push for an overthrow of Rome. A third reason that Jesus concealed himself was because every time he had a head-to-head confrontation with the Pharisees, it heightened the tension between them. I mean, if you think of this in purely human terms, what was to stop some frantic, fanatic Pharisee from coming up to him in a crowd and reaching behind him and, and slitting his throat? I mean, humanly speaking, that could have happened. He was always pressed by the crowds and the enemies were always there. That could have happened. But he had God's purpose in mind. And even though the flesh might say, end it here, destroy the enemy now, be done with this, it was not God's plan. And Jesus never lived in the grasp of human flesh. So he wasn't going to to have revenge upon people. He He was going to limit his power of God, what he could do, because, again, it's God's plan. Now notice verse 19, which continues Isaiah's prophecy of his character. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. What does that mean? It means that Jesus would not be a rabble rouser. He wasn't a hothead. He wasn't determined to start any kind of a grassroots movement and become a revolutionary. So you'll not find him in the streets making impassioned pleas against the Roman government. He wasn't a lunatic that was trying to put together a people's militia. There is no underground movement that he wanted to be a part of. And there were plenty of characters that were like that at the time that Jesus lived. In Acts chapter 5, we find that the apostles were grouped together with these types of revolutionaries. Whenever they angered the Pharisees with their preaching, they accused them of trying to incite some kind of sedition. Gamaliel, who was a, uh, Gamaliel rather, who was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, warned the council, let these men alone. He said, he said, let them alone for the time being, because if they are not real men of God, then they'll perish just like all of these others that have tried to start radical movements. Let me read this to you from Acts chapter 5. It says, Then stood there up one in the council of Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee. Now that's not Judas Iscariot, a different Judas, Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, 
and all, even as, as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily be found even to fight against God. So Jesus wasn't that type, not these revolutionary types. He wasn't going to take his message into the streets and get crowds worked up into a frenzy. He wasn't going to pull a Timothy McVeigh and blow up a federal building. So you don't find Jesus in protest and picketing and all of that. Jesus would not threaten people. He was the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, not Mohammed the Muslim. Well, Mohammed gained his following. How did he get his following? He cut off people's heads with a scimitar. That's a good way to get people to follow you. And as one commentator said, it's a good way to get an offering. If I said to you today, it's your money or your head, we'd make budget every week, I think. But Jesus was not that kind of a person. When he rode into Jerusalem, it wasn't on Pegasus and it wasn't on a unicorn. He didn't even ride in on my little pony. He rode in on a stubborn donkey. And when people cried out for him, it wasn't because he'd spent weeks campaigning and sent his PR people in front of him, uh, putting up billboards and handing out flyers. My servant shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. So Jesus preferred to conceal himself until the right time, until it was God's time. And then when it was God's time, do you remember again, he's there in that, in, that, in that judgment hall of Pilate's and he uttered not a word. He didn't put up a defense. He didn't give any long impassioned pleas to, to Pilate. And when they began to nail him to the cross, he didn't weep and wail and say, don't do this to me. There are no protests. Instead, as the book of Isaiah said, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. There was no need to. Because he was following the Father's plan. It's never his intent to start a radical political movement. It was not his intent to be hailed as a hero of the Jews. His intent was not to be known only as a miracle worker. His intent was not to avoid the cross. But he concealed himself so that God's plan would be carried out precisely as intended. Now here's part of the problem this whole thing. Is that the Jews had the scriptures. But what they did was to ignore all of these prophecies of the Messiah that said he would suffer. They didn't want a suffering king. They wouldn't want a dying king. They don't want a a self-sacrificing Messiah. They want someone who's going to conquer the Roman Empire. Someone who's going to come into power right then. And Jesus was not ready for it then. He would be later, and he's going to come back that way. But not this time. He came to die. So he didn't want protection of the people. He didn't want to be made a king for the wrong purposes. Now, fourthly, I'd like you to look at one of the difficult verses of this section. Verse 20 says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. Now, that might be a little bit confusing to you. You might have trouble deciphering that in your King James Version, but don't think that you'll find any solace in the newer versions. The NIV reads, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. How many of you are helped a whole lot by that interpretation? I didn't think you would be. So what does he mean? What does this scripture mean? Well, it means that Jesus was always compassionate. His disposition was to be a compassionate person. 
And we see it all through his ministry. It's already been stated in this passage. In verse 15, great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And it's worth noting that Jesus was not like faith healers today. I mean, there are thousands of people who have their faith in faith healers. But do you ever read about their healings? Have you watched their crusades? Have you ever seen one where they healed everyone? No, they don't do that. They have their healing line, and they choose which ones are going to get into the line. They choose the ones they want to deal with, and all the rest of them are pushed aside, and they're not dealt with. Did you ever see one of them heal a blind person? Did you ever see one of them heal somebody from a congenital defect? Did you ever see them raise someone from the dead? No, you haven't, and you never will. Not one time has a medical miracle been proved or verified that came from one of those healing campaigns. And if they wanted to heal people, why don't they go to the hospital? I mean, there's hundreds of people in the hospital. You can go door to door. There's somebody there sick in the hospital. That's why they're there. So why don't they go there? They don't have to put out a cent to, to, to rent a building somewhere in order to have a campaign. Go to the hospital. Those people want to be healed too. Well, with Jesus, there are no processes. With him, there is no demand that a person had to have great faith to be healed. There wasn't a selective line for them. He healed everybody. And you know why? Because he's a man of compassion. So what does the verse mean? Well, to put it to you very simply, it means that Jesus would not walk on hurting people. That there are no throwaway people with Jesus. Everybody counts, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is. Everybody counts. Well, how do you get that out of a bruised reed and smoking flax? Maybe you don't understand that, but these people did. A bruised reed. Reeds were very common in Israel. A shepherd would walk out into the fields on a lonely night, and he would pick a reed And that reed was hollow inside, and so what he would do is he'd make a flute out of it. And he would play a tune on that flute to while away the the nighttime. And after a while, that flute would become filled with his saliva. And then it would become weak, and it would begin to bend, and it wasn't good anymore. And so he would just throw the reed away and go get another one. Then the prophecy talks about smoldering flax. Flax was used as a wick. And they would put the wick down into a little bowl of oil and it would draw up the oil through that flax and that flax would burn. But as it began to burn down to get closer and closer to that bowl of oil and then when it finally got down too far, it wouldn't burn any longer. What it would do is just smolder. It would smoke. So what do you do with it? You throw it away and you go get another piece of flax. Well, this is used as an example of people. When people are hurt and broken... They get stepped on by others. They can't play a tune any longer. They're a soggy flute, so they're useless. Like a burned wick, they can't give any light. They're no good. And this is a comparison to all of these people that that the Pharisees had no time for. And they criticized Jesus because he spent time with outcasts. That his friends came from those who were the worst sinners tax collectors, prostitutes, anybody that was a sinner, Jesus spent time with and and was willing to save them. And all of these people that had various diseases, do you think the Pharisees had any use for them? No. You know why? Because they thought that sickness was a result of sin. And so you were out of the favor of God if you had a sickness. You were blind. You were deaf. You were lame. You had all of these problems because you were a terrible sinner. 
And these are the kinds of hurting people that Jesus went to. He was drawn to them because they were so unlike the Pharisees. Because these were the kinds of people that thought themselves, we're just not good enough for God. That God's not going to listen to us. God's not going to pay attention to us. God doesn't want us. They knew that they were sinners. But the Pharisees would never admit that. They would never admit that they were like a prostitute, like a drunkard. They were good people. But Jesus didn't see it that way. He saw all people as sinners. He saw all people as spiritually bankrupt. He saw all people as needing his help. All people need to be saved. And the blessed truth of our Savior is that he never turns anyone away who comes to him. He doesn't throw people away. Recently, I had someone come to my office and and we were talking about salvation and this person said to me, I just know that I've really done some terrible things in my life. And a person comes into the pastor's office and, and his eyes are downcast. He won't even look the preacher in the face. And he's thinking, you know, that preacher's holier than I am. But you know what I said to that person? I said, all of us are sinners and I need to be saved just as much as anybody else. I'm a sinner too. And I need to be saved by God's grace. doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus doesn't throw people away because of sin. He came to save us from our sins and to wash those sins away in his blood. And so how unlike these self-righteous Pharisees he was. Nobody is a discarded reed. Nobody is a smoldering wick. He takes all the ones that others think are useless. And if they will come to him for salvation, he opens his arms wide to receive him them now I want you to notice the last part of this verse though it says a bruised reed shall he not break and smoking flax shall he not quench till or until he send forth judgment unto victory this tells us that Jesus will conquer it's God's plan that Jesus will triumph they'll kill him they'll think that they have the victory but Jesus has the final victory He will not break the bruised reed. He will not snuff out smoldering flax. But pay attention very closely to the word till or the word until. Because one day it's going to be too late for the self-righteous Pharisees, for the self-righteous people. And one day it's going to be too late for even the broken people. See, there is no more righteousness in being downtrodden than there is in being selfish and conceited. Poor people aren't saved because they're poor. Rich people aren't saved because they're rich. Sick people aren't saved because they're sick. And healthy people aren't saved because they're healthy. All have to come to Jesus. Because scripture says he's coming with judgment. All are going to be judged. And there's only one way to escape the coming judgment of God. And that is to have your faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's another category here. The Jews are not the only ones to be saved. In fact, in this story, it seems like there weren't very many that were. Verse 21 says, though in his name shall the Gentiles trust. And so if the Jews reject him as the king, all is not lost because the Gentiles will believe in him. And this is where we are today. The Jews have rejected Christ for centuries. Very few Jews are saved today. Today it's you and me. Today it's Gentile people. We've come to Christ, and Gentiles are the ones that preach the gospel. Gentiles are the ones that do missionary work. And thank God for this, that he included us, that he came to save us as well. But we have to trust him. See, that's the key to this. 
The Savior is the Savior of those who trust him and all under others fall under the condemnation and the judgment of God. This passage is an oasis in a, in a desert of unbelief, but an oasis is no good for anybody that doesn't come to drink. An oasis is no good for someone who doesn't believe. We must trust Christ. Now, I want to close today with a great illustration from S. Lewis Johnson. He has a wonderful sermon on this passage. But he tells this story. He says, there's a story of a, a little boy who was in a hospital in the days of King George V. And they were told in this hospital that the king was going to pay them a visit that day. So everybody put on their best clothes as they were lying in their bed waiting for the king to come. There was one little boy who was so anxious to see the king all day long. There were a number of visitors because it was visitor's day. And along about four o'clock in the afternoon, a man came in with a number of other men with him and they went around in ordinary clothes. It was to be an informal day. He spoke to a number of the kids and he even spoke to this young boy who was waiting to see the king. He patted him on the head. He spoke very nicely to him and left. Well, that night, as he was being made ready for bed, he spoke to the nurse and said, Nurse, the king didn't come. And she said, Oh, the king did come. Don't you remember that nice elderly man that came over and patted you on the head and spoke so sweetly to you? And he said, Yes, I do. And she said, Well, that was the king. And he said, But nurse, he didn't have his crown on. Then he goes on, now the Lord Jesus came the first time and he did not have his crown on. He didn't strive, he did not cry. His voice was not heard in the streets to announce him a king. But a time is coming when he shall have his crown on. He shall come back with many diadems. But then it will be the furious Jesus, not the meek and gentle Jesus. And his name shall the Gentiles trust. That's the successful outcome of it. They trust because they love. And one never trusts a power or a force. This is a person. The grand enthusiasm of the saints arises from love for him. No other leader will suffice us. And that's the Jesus that we find in this passage. He came with the predetermined plan of the Father. His plan was to go to the cross to die for our sins and nothing would stop him. And along the way, while he was here, he brought the truth of salvation. People hated him. They tried to kill him. But he was willing to do what the Father said. When they thought that they were being successful, he went to the cross. But even in that hour of his death on the cross, Jesus had compassion for lost sinners. And that passion, compassion shone out like a beacon on the cross. He was there suffering and bleeding, been nailed into his hands and his feet. And while that blood flowed down from that cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was the self-righteous, hateful people that crucified him. It was the power, powerful people that crucified him. And did you know, oddly enough, it was also the bruised reeds and the smoking flax that crucified him. And yet, while bleeding he was willing to forgive that's the jesus that we trust he's this oasis in this barren desert of sin and what jesus does is to invite sinners to come to him and you are one of those sinners everybody in here is one of those sinners trust him because all of us are going to reach this day where it says until 
Jesus is coming back. And it says when he comes back, he'll bring judgment unto victory. And then it's going to be too late to trust him. So what's it going to be for you? The grand enthusiasm of the saints arise from love from him. No other leader shall suffice us. Don't give us a political savior. Give us nothing but Jesus, our Lord, crucified. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who came into this world to save us from our sins. And though it would have been so easy for him to just leave us alone, leave us in our misery, never to go to that cross to suffer for our sins, yet we thank you for a Savior who is willing to do this. We know that we have no hope without him, and all that he asks is that we come believing in him, trusting in him to be saved from our sins. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to someone's heart today, help them to realize this, what Jesus came to do. I pray, Lord, you impress upon them this message to believe him even this day and to be forgiven of all their sins and then have that eternal promise that they're saved and will be at home with God. Thank you, Lord, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.